out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Hey Paulette, all the way from Dublin. You were active. <laughs> I love that term. From 1987 to 1991, a four-piece band who did um, various singles, split an album. Anyway, we're going to find out more about that because I spoke to one of the members very recently, bass player Colin um, Fitzpatrick, to find out more about life, love and poetry. Anyway, this is the um, interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, as you do in the world that is showbiz, we got down to the exciting subject that was the early musical influences and that moment where music takes off. Anyway, this is Colum and um, yes, his response. Well, take it away. So, I mean, I'll give you a bit of a background, I guess. Um, so I'm 52 now. So, yeah, I'm, I was born in 1968 in Dublin. Um, very much a working class family background. Uh, my dad was a carpenter. And um, so I was the youngest. Um, there was quite a quite a, a gap between myself and my brother and then my two eldest sisters. So there was like eight and 10 and 12 years between, you know, them and me. So um, I, my earliest memories um, would have been from the early 70s, I guess when I was five or six. My, I remember my sisters had um, some, some Neil Diamond and Diana, Diana Ross records and, and stuff like that. Um, and my brother, he, he liked music a lot. Um, my, my sisters and my parents um, weren't, weren't hugely, you know, into music. Um, but my brother was, but he was, as I say, he was eight years, seven or eight years older than me. But um, he, he, he listened to a lot of American music, you know, stuff like, um, well, a big one for him and for me, it may be a surprise to, to um, the music that compared to the music that I got involved in later was, was Steely Dan and a lot of American music like Bread, you know, David Gates, Bread, Steely Dan, The Eagles. So was he a bit, because I had a brother who was seven years older than me. <clears throat> yeah. And he was really into prog rock. He loved prog yeah. rock. And when, yeah. when I was growing up, you know, I was like 10, 11 at the time. <clears throat> and mm. we come from a sort of a working class background in the countryside growing mm. up in the village. And when my parents got married, you know, they, they were, you know, they had to sell all their possessions just to sort of get enough money to, to sort of get a place. And so, you know, a record player only appeared in the house or bungalow in, in the 70s. And there was a few records. And then my brother started bringing records and it was like, yes, and Genesis and Wishbone Ash and Barclay James Harvest. And then, and then there was those other ones like Supertramp and Steely Dan. And, yes. Um, um, so <laughs> it's, kind, it's kind of, um, I, I was, I guess, I was a little bit different. Um, I've got a, I suppose I guess I'm comfortable talking about it now after all these years, but a lot of my contemporaries and people I was in bands with, they were into, you know, um, a lot of UK bands, punk, you know, um, uh, contemporary kind of rock music. And um, my, my formative years, as I say, was like, you know, I don't know, sunny California and West Coast America, you know, as I say, I, I really got to love um, Steely Dan. I suppose I was looking up to my brother, I guess, 
my yes. big brother. And I was so much younger that obviously I, I was still too young to even, you know, own a record player, buy records. So the only thing I could really listen to was what my older siblings had and listened to. So I, I, that influenced me a lot, um, I think, um, in my younger years. And um, yeah, so Steely Dan was, was kind of, I was pretty much obsessive about, about them. And um, in the early 80s, I would have been like, I don't know, 14 or 15. I, McDonald Fagan solo album, The Nightfly. Um, right. I, was, yeah. I, I, I became com completely obsessed about that album. and It was a great uh, record sleeve as well. I always remember it the was, so It was chic. a great, yes, but it was a great record. But um, but so it's, it's kind of at, at odds to a few years later when I was like, you know, 17, 18, starting to play in bands, going into a grotty little rehearsal space in the city centre here in Dublin and Kind of playing you know um indie kind of pop jangling yeah. pop music uh even though i was still you know absolutely loving steely dan and donald fagan and and and, and that kind of stuff but um I, well, I actually to... can i just say my favorite steely dan album was katie lied mm -hmm. i thought that was just you know there was one was it called black friday and then... black friday is the opening track yeah yeah and my um, yeah bad my sneakers bad sneakers yeah that was on that. my favorite two albums would have been um Asia in 77 and the last album in, in the 1980s with uh, Gaucho. Yeah. Um, um, apart from their, their later offerings in the in the mid 2000s, um, two albums they released later. But uh, so yeah, I mean that's that's where I would have started off um, from the the 70s through to the early early 80s, um, and um, that had an influence, as I say, on the music I listened to and liked. Um, all through my life, really, I guess. Um, I, I, I suppose what it did for me, and for if we want to talk about Hey Paul F. First, um, I, I kind of came at at the uh, at, at the music from probably a different kind of angle from the other members of the band. So Derek Dalton, he was the guitarist, and he wrote all the music, and Eamon, Eamon Davis was the singer, and he wrote you know the lyrics. And um, that was pretty much exclusively it, um, as regards songwriting. So myself. So when did then, when did you when did you find the bass? When did you find your instrument? Well, then? what happened was um, Derek was a lifelong school friend of mine. We met on our first day at school when we were four years of age, and we'd been friends our, our whole lives. So he he left school at sixteen and he got a job, um, kind of a car mechanic um, job. And we kind of um, lost touch a little bit because I stayed on in school to do my, my leaving cert, which is the equivalent of, you know, your, the exams you do in the UK when you're 17 or 18. Um, so he went out and bought a bass guitar and he played around with that for a year or so. And he kind of got fed up with it. And he came around to me one day and said, here, listen, you know, I'm going to buy a guitar. How about you try playing bass? Now I'm left-handed. So we changed the strings around. This would have been about 1987. And I started messing around, playing around with the bass. And I found I really, really liked it. And um, I found I could, could, you know, get a melody out of it fairly easily. And, and Derek really, really took a shine to the guitar, playing guitar. So that was the kind of, I guess, the start of, you know, uh, Hey Paulette. Yeah. And and when we were 17 and 18, as you do, we started going out into town, 
drinking, gigs, meeting new people that weren't in, you know, from our school, from from, from uh, school friends and such like. And that's how we hooked up with uh, Eamon Davis. Yeah. Um, because because uh, during that period, you know, going back, you know, slightly, I mean, you, you know, we'd had that punk period, which kind of lasted a few years before it all kind of gets a bit rubbish. And then 79, mm. you know, Thatcher gets in, so things really change yes. a lot for us. And then, you know, from the 80s, you had that post-punk, you know, with the, you know, bands like Magazine and Peel and, and Gang of Four. Yeah. And then sort of those very early kind of bands like Simple Mind, U2, mm-hmm. sort of big country that, and oh, Echo and the Bunny Men and, and Julian Co. But then it was kind of 83 that I thought there was a real moment with, and it's like the Smiths, basically. They, they appeared and they in that kind of... Well, yeah, I mean, Derek, um, Eamon and myself, not so much. In fact, um, I don't think Eamon actually liked the Smiths at all, but, but Derek, lo- Derek loved them. And the drummer we had at the time, um, hey Paul, I always had trouble with, with drummers. Darren Nolan was the chap who was our drummer, but he was never officially in the band because our first single was, we, did, we, we, we used the drum machine. But anyway, Derek, was, Derek loved the Smiths and Darren loved the Smiths. And to annoy Eamon in rehearsals, they would you know, start playing Smiths songs and he would just kind of stare at them while we waited for them to finish um and i I wasn't good enough of a bass player to join in you know so to to do andy Rourke's uh bass riffs so i I would just kind of try and jam along but um but so yeah so derek loved the smiths yeah yes and then did you did you sort of feel at that stage that things were sort of changing for you in, in sort of Dublin, you know, musically, were, were sort of, was there yes. kind of a scene that was happening? Because I can remember, well, looking back, absolutely. especially yeah. because we, we had, you know, John Peel, who was one of those great gatekeepers, and then you had like the music yeah. papers, like the enemy that mm. had made the sounds. And then like every town almost had a venue, didn't they? Like an alternative mm. I just wondered well, if, if what yeah, it was I like mean, from Dublin. There absolutely was. I mean, we have Hot Press magazine here, you know, the music magazine still going strong. But um, yeah, so the, the one venue that everybody talks about on where we played a lot of gigs, most of our gigs was uh, the Underground. Um, so it was um, in a busy street called Dame Street in the center of the city. Um, it was run by a young guy called Jeff Brennan and his father. Um, and it was the place to go to if you were a young independent band um, wanting to get your first gigs. Um, he gave everybody a shot. So it was basically a doorway uh, um, with the underground sign, like the London Underground, the whole thing. You had a sign yeah. outside. And you went down these very steep and dangerous <laughs> stairs to the small, narrow, long venue with a tiny stage um, beside the, sta- the stairs as you went in. And you know, sometimes he wouldn't even ask for a demo tape. He'd say, listen, you know, we rehearse around the corner in Temple Bar. Um, you know, can we have a gig? He said, okay, well, come around next Thursday or Friday and you can do a support slot. So he gave everybody a chance. Now, he was, he, he, he didn't suffer fools, you know, likely either. If you weren't any good, you know, or if you weren't reasonable enough, you, you wouldn't really get a second gig. But we played many gigs there, as a lot of Irish and Dublin bands did, you know, a house the Stars of Heaven, Something Happens, Whipping Boy, um, a lot, a lot of different bands that came out of Dublin. Was it was it a bit like CBGBs and Max's Kansas City? I guess I guess it's it, if there can be a, an equivalent in Dublin, I guess it was. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it was the the Irish or the Dublin equivalent 
to, to those kind of places that had that kind of reputation, you know. And um, it was everybody's favorite favorite small venue to go and see bands, and it was so yeah. easy, to, so so accessible to everybody. So you know, it was a great place. And what was it like having a major? Because we, you know, I'm from Norwich. Now mm. Norwich is a lovely place, but it doesn't really have a great music scene. So we had, you know, the Farmers Boys. They had problems with drummers. They had a drum machine, but they didn't really do much apart from a few singles and an album. And then there was like serious drinking and the Higsons. But what was it like when you have a band like you two in your neighbourhood that suddenly like keeps mm. going from one strength to another? Um. Yeah, I suppose there was. We, we we would never compare ourselves. We would never compare ourselves to like you know. You know, we always saw ourselves as kind of a small independent band. We never had any kind of really huge aspirations to to. We would have loved to get a proper record deal, but we never actually really did. Um, but just going back to your point about drummers, uh, Darren was our drummer, but he was never officially in the band because he had his own thing going with his then girlfriend, now wife, um, and. He had he wanted to, you know he wanted to do his own thing but and that's why we we use the drum machine um for, for the recording of the first single there's a bit of a story there actually because i had um we, we had booked the studio to record commonplace and i don't want to be an albardo the first single in 19 august 1988 and um a week or so before the recording we um i fell off my bicycle and broke my wrist so well, I was, I was in a cast for about a week or two, and we couldn't or decided not to um, cancel the recording session. So I had to go to the hospital and have my cast um, temporarily removed, <laughs> um, in order to play bass um, for, for, for the rec and it, it was incredibly sore. But then, apart from that, um, I had to actually program the drum machine because Eamon and Derek said, "Well, you know, you're the bass player, you're the rhythm section." We didn't own a drum machine, so we used the one that was in the studio, and I had to press a few buttons and try and work out a drum beat for Commonplace, and I don't want to be a male bardo within half an hour or something like that. And then also, <laughs> if that wasn't bad enough, um, the engineer um, and the guy said, listen, we want some tambourine. So um, I played tambourine on Commonplace with a broken wrist. <laughs> oh, nice one. Um, and the, the, the guy, uh, the engineer, he slowed the tape right down so I could play it like slowly and, and not do any more damage to my broken wrist. And then um, he sped it up to normal speed. So that's a bit of a story about that. Oh, but, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, so so uh, uh, for anybody who listens to the song. But um, yeah, drummers, um, uh, Hey Paul Let didn't last long enough for us to actually eventually get a full-time permanent member of the band drummer you know yes. and Darren Darren stuck with us until we kind of decided to call it a day and this was 87 which because I because some of my theories are not watertight but you know like the mm. indie pop years of for me in the 80s were between 83 to 87 which are the years of the Smiths and then you yes. had that great cassette that came out with the NME the C80, um, C86 cassette which had 22 mm -hmm. tracks but then Things really started to change because, because as we as we know, all generations who are sort of sixteen mm. to eighteen, you know that generation, the next one, the next little group that comes on want their own kind of people. They don't really want to have somebody who's been around for a few years. They want to discover the next thing, and 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 it's amazing how quickly scenes start to look quite bored or sort of a bit tired on. You know, I agree. Like, yeah, and so it's kind of interesting at that stage because, like, the Smiths broke up. 
then ecstasy suddenly sort of comes into the scene. So then, then there's that kind of move towards the dance kind of move, you know, the world of you know people like Happy Mondays and Final Spring, Soup Dragons, and you know, exactly. And and suddenly they, there's that feeling, though there is that other sort of London scene with My Bloody Valentine and Carter being stuck in the sex machine and the faith dealers and love. So there was a kind of a, a bit of a grungy kind of North London scene. What was it like for you? Because you were sort of we formed in '87, which for me was we, kind of the height yeah, of the music thing. We, we we missed the boat completely. I mean, we kind of we kind of um, uh, started, you know, we we were we were at a certain age. We were seventeen or eighteen when we started, and um, I guess we 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 knew around nineteen ninety or so that, uh, like you have just said, there things were changing um, on the music scene, and um, the kind of music we were making, um, it was still liked by a lot of people. But it, you know, things had moved on. Like I said, you had the Happy Mondays. You had you know, um, different bands like that, the whole Manchester scene and, you know, Blur and, uh, um, Blur and the, um, you know, uh, the, the whole Manchester scene and the music scene, uh, the, the dance scene. But yeah, so I mean, we kind of, we kind of basically fizzled out because we just felt we didn't fit in and people, you know, people just didn't like the kind of music as much anymore, I guess, you know? Yeah. So did the band last some sort of, 87 to 1990 was that your kind Thereabouts, of about yeah i mean again it's a, such a long time ago my, <laughs> my, my I, have, I have a terrible memory of the best of times but um so yes it was relatively short-lived i think it was about three years from but then from in 80... that time so just slightly fast forward before going back again but mm. then fire station records in germany who we love yes they're the ones well, i know what happened there was and um, this was in in 2006 so um, in, in the decades and the years since, you know, the, the demise of Hey Paulette and the whole thing, um, there was a small little bit of a kind of a following around the world for that kind of music. And the internet happened as well in the mid to late 90s. And um, that was kind of a, a little door that opened up for people to, to, to look for and find and reminisce about music from, you know, times gone past. And we, we, we did see, um, you know, a little bit of a kind of a following for Hey Paulette. And um, Fire Station Records, a German label in association with um, Clarendon Records, I think they're, I think they're US-based small independent labels. Um, they approached us to, 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 to release um, the Hey Paulette music. And uh, Long Ball Into Nowhere, the album, is basically the complete discography of the band. Um, it's everything that we released. It's uh, two singles and some unrecorded, or so, sorry, some unreleased tracks. And we also bought the rights of our John Peel session to use on the recording. So, so yeah, it's um, that came out in two thousand and six, um, and was fairly well received. But it, yeah, it was. It's basically a, a collection of everything that we recorded really in those three years. And when UV sort of turned, you know got in touch, did you did you feel quite like, God, you can't believe it, but there's this geezer in, London, in Germany who, who really loves the band, he wants to put it together. Because I've interviewed a few people who, yes. you know, who I suppose never actually got an album right, but just did a lot of singles, a few sexes. Exactly, yeah. And mm. then sort of put their memorabilia and their kind of tapes and whatever mm. in the attic, got a job and then went on and then suddenly got a knock at the door. Well, I really love your stuff, I want to bring it out. Well, that's, that's, that's a, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's exactly what happened. I mean, because 
you know, you have to remember, I'd say, about the internet and all the rest of it. That all happened in the mid to mid 90s, you know, when people started getting computers, uh, you know, proper computers and access to the internet and so on. And I think that I think that has helped an awful lot um, to, to, for, for people to have access to this older music. And, and we were we were all, you know, both surprised and delighted that somebody somewhere liked Hey Paulette and we were able to find out about more people who liked Hey Paulette and Yes. music from from those times and we were we were we were absolutely more than happy for them to 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 pay for and press you know um a few thousand copies of this album uh for us you know myself and derek had to had to um uh kind of uh, scrounge together the, the 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 recordings because we didn't we didn't manage to keep any of the the master tapes so we so the the cd is made we we, we hooked up with um a very good um, mastering engineer and we brought some tapes and, and actual vinyl uh, into a studio to, to, compi to compile apart from the field session to compile all the tracks yeah he done a great he, he done a great job of, of kind of uh, making it a kind of a more of a, a cohesive uh, release with all the music so we uh, we were delighted to see it come out um, and, what was, and what's your memory of your john peel session and nothing nothing but uh, well uh, nothing but um fantastic memories well, I, well we, we did two peel sessions another band i was in called the sewing room did the peel session in 1996 but um i remember um we traveled to london um darren our drummer had a van so we put all our amps and drum kits into the van crossed the ferry to hollyhead drove down to london um we stayed uh, Derek had a friend and darren had a brother um living in london so we we slept on couches and we went in the following day into Maida Vale and very special experience for us. We went down into the basement and we could see um, there's a very large uh, studio in the middle of the building. It's all most all, this, all of the studios, as far as I know, are underground. Um, I'm not sure what the building was used for in the past, but um, uh, the BBC took it over after the war, I think. And it there's a huge studio in the center where the orchestras um, record. And then there's a number of smaller studios. When I say small, they're still, they, they, they still, um, they look like the same size as something you'd see in Abbey Road. I mean, you know, there were still very, very big studios. Yeah. So there's one, there was one studio there. And I remember um, we set up all our, all of our equipment and Derek, Derek said, um, the producer on the session was a guy called, um, he, his name was, um, was it Dale Griffith? Dale Griffin, yes, and Derek was delighted because he had produced some of the Smith sessions um, for John Peel. So Derek was made up, you know. Um, and I didn't know who this guy was from Adam, but um, it made no odds to me. What, what actually struck stuck in my mind was um, I looked up on the wall and there was a, a brass plaque on the wall and it said, uh, Bing Crosby made his last ever recording in this studio in 19... 79 or 19, whatever year it was and I said wow <laughs> and, uh, I thought that was a just you know fantastic but um, what I remember was um, it was something that we hadn't done before recording was where we all it was just like you set up all the gear do a bit of a sound check and it was like playing a gig where you just go one two three go and you play the song and then we'd go into the into the uh, control room and BBC being the BBC um, we, we we heard some playback and we, our, our jaws just hit the floor because it sounded so fantastic, you know, straight off the bat. You know? <laughs> and uh, we were just awestruck and amazed and super excited. So um, it was a fantastic experience from beginning to end.
Yes, absolutely, and and, and as, well, as, well, as well as that, listening to the session as well, because you know, obviously we can we couldn't get BBC Radio One and FM in, uh, back home here in Dublin, so we had to tune in on medium wave and get our cassette tapes ready to record the program and so on. So it was a fantastic, nothing but fantastic memories of of, of the whole thing, you know. And when you were, you know, during that period, was was music? Did you sometimes think this could be a career, or did you always feel like? Not really. Yes, um, um, we all felt it was and could be and hopefully would be our career. And then, um, like 99% of all bands or songwriters that ever existed, you realise, oh, it's not going to work out. Um, it's very few people who make it, who can make a living yeah. and become a professional musician. Very few. Um, so, um, yeah, this, the real, realisation came later on in life. Um, after some other bands and so on, I can talk about. But yeah, I mean, um, at the time, yes, we we had John Peel had played our single. We had released a couple of things on our own little independent label. We had done a Peel session. We done a, a similar session for the Irish equivalent of John Peel, a guy called Dave Fanning on on um, on Two FM, the national broadcaster, RTE Radio Two FM. We done a session for him. Uh, so it was a good time, great times that we thought. You know, listen. Who knows? But um, yeah. it didn't work out. You it know? didn't work. No. Did you have a? What was the last recording you did for the band? We did two songs, um, "Inconsequential" and "Pebble Lash," were the two songs we recorded um, as a kind of a demo or whatever the reason was. We recorded them anyway, and um, they were the last two things we did. They're, they're they are included on on the on the long oh, ball. So, did you have a ball. moment with the band that you sat down and said, "Look"? You know what? I, I, you know what? I can't remember. I, there was no, there was no final bust up. There was no, there was no big deal. It, it just fizzled out. It just fizzled out. We just, we, we just said, listen, we've put our, our money and our time and our effort into putting out these these records ourselves, and we we've done what we can. And it, you know, maybe we'll try something else. Maybe we'll go our separate ways. And yeah. there was there was no hard feelings. Um, I'm still in touch to, in touch with everybody in the band um and yeah it, it kind of fizzled out yes as these things do and then what yeah. happens then what happened to you because obviously you sort of stuck with yeah. more music for the next i did I, I well for i I'm, I, I was involved in music until i hit about 31 and then i got completely burnt out and i got completely fed up with music and everything to do with it for about 10 years or more but before all that um um myself and Eamon went away and did a few bits and bobs and I played around with other people I knew from the music scene and um, a couple of different things and gigs and bits and bobs and then the sewing room happened in about 1993 um, so I, I got together with uh, Eamon Davis the singer from Hey Paulette and a chap called Stan Erocht who was the guitarist from the Stars of Heaven um, and we formed um, uh, the sewing room mm. and uh, we did a few things. We recorded a few little bits and bobs in uh, Stan's house, some demos um, without drums, um, just again, <laughs> no drummers. And um, uh, eventually, we 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 got um, another chap we had known called Des Foley to join the band. And, and so, I guess 1994 was the start of the sewing room proper. Yeah. Um, and this yeah. is, and, and everyone always talks about timing being so incredibly important in music. Because some people say 
we were two years too early, you know, and mm. you know, we were just the people or who came to see it were two years too late. But you were there right at the sort of moment that Britpop because you know, after that drug, you know, the, the kind of ecstasy scene, then we had the grunge thing mm. from Seattle, and then there was you know a few years of after that, everyone's a bit bored with that, and then Britpop comes along, you know, and waves at us in, in sort of ninety two to ninety four. So you were you your timing on the Britpop years was was kind of perfect really. Mm. Um, I, I guess so. Except that the, uh, I, I'm not sure about um, the music the song room made it was it was suitable for the time. It was more like Radiohead than than Blur, but um, or, or Oasis. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, what happened there was in 1995 we were we said we went through the usual story again of okay, let's record some demos. So we saved up some money, went into a small studio um, here in Dublin, and um, it turns out that the studio was in the basement, but there was a very small independent record company called Dead Elvis Records, who had who owned the studio and who had a small office on the top floor of the building. Um, the engineer and the two chaps who ran the record company were, uh, were involved with each other. So, um, so we recorded the demos and we noticed that one of this, this guy kept appearing in the control room over the four or five days we were there. Um, or five or six days, whatever it may be, and he would come in and um, make himself a coffee and rob some of our biscuits, and he, he didn't really say a lot, you know. And um, it turns out he was a chap called Eamon Crudden, uh, a guy from Dundalk, and he ran the label with his brother Og, is his name, and the engineer's name was Mark Carroll, and they were all from Dundalk up in County Loud. Um, and eventually he said, you know, on day four or five, he said, "You know, I, I like I like what you're doing there. You know, maybe we, maybe we might put this this album out. We have a small little independent label called Dead Elvis. You know, would you like us to put it out?" And we said, uh, "Yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely." So they, they ended up paying for the recording and 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 the pressing and you know putting out the um what 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 ended up being um uh the, the sewing room and Nico um in 1995 um. Our first album, yes, and then and then what happened to the sewing room? So um, in '96 we went across to London again to do a peel session. He he liked the sewing room and he liked what we were doing, and he he knew all about uh, Stan Erocht and his his involvement with with the Stars of Heaven. The Stars of Heaven had done a couple of peel sessions, and John Peel was a big fan of them. So he knew Stan and he liked what the sewing room was doing. He knew about Hey Paulette. He knew myself and Eamon had been in Hey Paula. So yes, yeah, so we did we did a session for him and we recorded and released the second album for uh, the sewing room in 19, sorry, we recorded an EP, a six track EP in 1996. And then the final album, um, Sympathy for the Disheveled <laughs> in, in 1997. So that again, that was another three or four years. Um, maybe this will work out for us. You know, gigs, albums, John, John Peel session. You know, who knows what will happen? And then um, we, uh, same thing happened. Stan decided to leave the band. Um, he, he, you know, he, he, he'd almost become not a veteran at that stage, but he, he, he had been, he'd been active for 15, 16, 18, 17 years in the music scene in Dublin. And um, after the side room, he, he, he said, "Look, you know." I'm kind of fed up. I want to try something else. So myself, Eamon, and Des struggled on for another year. We recorded an album's worth of demos in, 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 our, in our homes um, 
for a third album. Uh, but then we just kind of, again, second time around, fizzled out over, yeah. over a course of six months or so. And no bad feelings. It just, it just, it just lost its steam and its momentum, you know? Yes, absolutely. And um, mm. one of my computers is quite noisy. Um, then, then what happens? Because you, you go on to do an amazing solo career, don't you? Well, what happened, um, I was 31 or so around that stage, uh, about, 19, um, about 1998, 1999. And I, I had been active uh, in music for so long, since I was 17. Um, and it, was my, it wasn't part of my life. It was my life. And I worked full time as a carpenter myself, you know, to earn a living, to pay my way. And um, like a lot of musicians just kind of stay on the on the on the dole, as we call it, you know, on, on the on social welfare. But no, I mean, I was brought up, um, as I say, to, you know, you always have to have a job and work. So I, I always worked full time. And then all of my spare time was music. So I had completely burnt out, I guess. Um, I'd had enough uh, disillusioned, fed up. Um, so I went away from music, um, both being involved in it and even to some degree listening to it and, you know, following it for yes. a, a, good, a good 10 years. I'd, I'd had enough. And uh, um, after a while, I started getting into, um, I'd always liked um, jazz music. Um, it, it was one of the first things I, I, I decided that um, I found or discovered for myself. Um, you know, so I, I, I listen to a lot of, a, a lot of um, jazz, jazz musicians, Dave Brubeck, you know, uh, Miles Davis, uh, Count Basie. Um, I, 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 went, I just went completely off on a different tangent. And um, um, a, chap, a guy called uh, uh, Paul Desmond, who actually was um, uh, Dave Brubeck's um, saxophone player, who played alto saxophone. But I fell in love with his music and his playing. And I discovered he had a he had a, a very long and illustrious career of his own. Um, um, this this guy Paul Desmond, um, and uh, so I listened to a lot of a lot of that in the nineties. Then later on, I got into stuff like um, the Blue Nile. I was a huge fan of the Blue Nile. Right. Um, um, I, um, I saw them play their gig when they eventually played a gig. They came over to Dublin and they played a gig here, and that was a magical experience. I forget what year that was now, but um, I remember. I remember that I love their music. Um, I listened to some Tom Waits. Um, I got into a band called um, Morphine. Um, a guy called Mark Sandman. I saw them on later with Jules Holland. Is that the three-piece band with the saxophone? Yes. And, um, yes. Yeah. yes. They're kind of blues, jazz kind of mixture. Swamp, and swamp blues. Swamp Blues, that's what you, yeah, you could call it that. But I remember seeing them, and it's not very often you see somebody, um, um, certainly not for me anyway, where it just blew me away. Mark Salmon was there. He had a two-string slide bass, um, baritone saxophone, and drums. And they played, um, they played uh, Cure for Pain, um, which is probably their, one of their most well-known songs. They released five or six albums. I have them all. I love them. I thought yeah. they were amazing. Um, those and uh, the Mark Everett, the Eels. I love the I, lo I love the Eels. Um, but, I your, but your solo work is, is this the yes, it's, lexicon? It's lexicon of sound. It's again, it's completely <laughs> different because I always I always listen to ambient music as well. Um, uh, Harold Budd, um, Brian Eno, you know the kind of the standard um, <laughs> people that everybody mentioned, um, and another chap 
uh, called, he has two or three albums, I have one here, called um, Tom Heasley. He is a Californian guy and he released three albums, but he plays, get a lot of this, he plays ambient tuba. And there's a <laughs> photograph there. There's a but photograph. Because I was looking on, and I had a listen to it on Spotify, and you have like 30,000 monthly listeners. So your, it your ambient you got, music has, has kind of rocketed. It, it does. It seems to be going very well because, um, as I say, there is a bit of a story behind that as well because um, I did always like ambient music and I liked all kinds of music as, as, as uh, I assume you're discovering as we go along through the interview. I mean, I, I, once music is good, I like it. I don't care what kind of genre or you know, what, what style it's in. Anyway, um, I worked uh, for a, a very large telecoms company for um, um, 20 odd years, close to it. And I was very miserable in the job, as most people are in their jobs. <laughs> and um, what happened was, I uh, uh, things happened, and I, I, I got this new job where I was processing these um, these bills or forms or dockets, whatever you want you you want to call them. And it enabled me to sit at my desk, put my headphones on, and listen to music all day in work while I was processing these these forms because I didn't have to interact with anybody on the phone. Um, not so many emails, so I was kind of a free agent, yeah. and I was over in the corner of the office processing these forms for about the last year and a half of my time in the telecoms company, um, and I started listening to um, uh, uh, Soma FM, Drone Zone is the station, and it's it's you know it's one of these online free streaming services that you know you can choose the style of music whatever you want to listen to. So day in day out for for a year and a half. I was listening to all these ambient soundscapes and drones, and I, I, I was—it was—I I fell in love with it, um, yeah. and it, it tied in with my background to loving, you know, the Harold Bud, Brian Eno, Tom Heasley, and, and, and a few others, um, John Fox and such like. But um, so then, I took—I um, was given um, a redundancy package. I was offered a redundancy package at at forty-seven years of age. And I said, yes, please, I'll have a piece of that. So I took that and it finally gave me a chance to take stock. Um, I, I had since, you know, bought a house, got married, had a, a very young son um, and it took a year off. So what I did with some of the money was in our small house here in my tiny attic, I built um, a, a recording studio. Um, initially, it started off as somewhere to store my bass guitars and my bits and bobs from my, from my music. Um, and then I got hold of a laptop and I started looking into, you know, I never really paid much attention in the, in the past, but I started looking at, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes and the whole thing and all the rest of that. And I said, listen, maybe I'll, I'll try and start doing something, you know, with this music thing. So, um, over the course of about a year or so, between um, from from um, 2018 and 19, I put the studio together, and even before it was completely finished, I got a laptop, a laptop up there and um, a, mu a music interface, a sound card interface, and I started messing around with with, with music. Um, I bought a couple of uh, cheap 1980s Casio synthesizers, and oh, yes, I, had my, I had my few bits of bobs, and I invested some money in. Some other equipment as well, um, some effects and different things. I had my basses and I bought a guitar, and I set to work. And 
it, it kind of all just it seemed to pour out of me. I mean, one thing after another, just kind of um, for, for quite a while, for a good 18 months, it seemed to be effortless because I had this little I had this little space in my attic where at any time where I was free, where I, I didn't have to go to the shops or make the, make some food or look after Joseph or, or all the normal household things you have to do. I could nip up into the attic and spend an hour or two escape, you know, yes. um, if there was nothing on TV, whatever it might be. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, and everything was just kind of set up for me. So I seemed to, um, a lot of this stuff just seemed to pour out of me. And um, I had some ideas, but often I didn't. I, it just kind of just happened. And um, it was after that when I had this stuff organized that I decided to, you know, try and pull it together, you know? Yes. And it all, and it sort of clicked. And so this is a very contemporary kind of musical yeah. avenue. It is, yes. So that's, that, you must be so chuffed at the thing that you've been doing music off and on all your life and that the last yes. project is probably getting so many more li listens and plays than your um, time in, in the Exactly. Program. Yeah. It's amazing, you know, when you think about it, you know. <laughs> so what have you got planned for next year? Um, next year, um, see, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, it's hard to know, really, what's um, this, this, there's the streaming thing, um, um, and you know the whole the whole thing of these um, processed you know sounds and these apps that have made uh, the whole streaming and Spotify thing has has taken off, you know, and that's kind of um, a big thing for us. It's it's been great, you know. Yes, mm. but but have you got things that you're going to be releasing next year? I am, um, yeah. I, I have some. I have mostly, mostly, um, I've, we've we've put out what what I've done so far. So um, I've kind of uh, exhausted a lot, a lot of energy, and that you know, um, the stuff I've, I've I've done, the different recordings are kind of um, where I'm at the moment. You know. Excellent. No, and also just lastly, I mean, what would you, if you could say something to an eighteen-year-old self? You know, if you could have said something to yourself with all the wisdom. Yes. And, and the kind of experience you've had and the kind of, yes, the ups and downs and everything else. What, what would you have said to that person? I think it's, it's, um, it, it was, it was kind of hard to, uh, hard to, hard to explain, um, what it was like, you know, in these, in these times, but, um, uh, it was, it was a stream, this, the whole streaming thing and the Spotify thing was, it was a huge, um, a huge eye opener for us, uh, for myself, um, it was kind of a way of, 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 you know, trying to reach a new audience. What I would say to anybody um, um, is, is just keep, you have to keep trying and you have to, um, you have to really want to keep, keep, keep at it. Um, no matter what anybody says or does, you know, you have to keep plugging away at your music and trying to promote your music as best you can. And um, yeah, I guess that's what we've done with the yes. best kind of sound. It's been, it's been a, uh, the whole, the whole, the whole, um, um, streaming thing has kind of been unusual for me, but um, it's been an interesting time. Yeah, absolutely. And you must be very chuffed that, you know, Hey Paulette is still sort of well-remembered and still played to this very day. Exactly. It's, 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 it surprises me. It surprises me to this day also um, that, you know, it's, it's, it's still kind of, uh, it's still, uh, it seems to be relevant to some people and they, they, still, they still are interested in hearing it and, and having it played, you know. Fantastic. Well, look. Indeed. We're going to edit it there. <laughs> well, we just say goodbye after that. Anyway, look, that was me in conversation with Colin Fitzpatrick from 
Hey, Paulette. There you go. Anyway, look, that was uh, much appreciated. Thank you ever so much for giving me the time for that. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. It's true. I know, I just hesitated there. Just do C86 Show. And all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Check them out. They could just change your life. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.